This episode of Agency Deal Masters is brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. Account Insight helps you deliver targeted, tailored ads to high value companies because today's B2B buyer decides digitally and in teams of up to 40 people. Account Insight helps you solve the problem of marketing to whole accounts, not just to one person. That's why smarter B2B marketers use account-based advertising. Founded by former WPP executives with extensive experience building and delivering B2B solutions, several friends of the show and leading B2B agencies use Account Insight to deliver targeted ads. You can find out more at accountinsight.ai. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. John Harris is the president and CEO at Worldwide Partners. He manages a network of 70 independent agencies who in turn manage over $5 billion worth of worldwide advertising revenues. He starts his career in the beer industry and learns everything about marketing, branding and shopper marketing from the ground up, which really gives him this really unique lens with which to view demand and growing brands. He has then gone on to build this amazing career with the likes of Wonderman, TBWA, and Location 3. I left this conversation feeling like I've just had like a 20-year education in about 45 minutes. This is just an absolute must-listen-to conversation with someone who is at the top of his game when it comes to all things above that we've just spoken about. So without me keeping you in suspense any further my conversation with John Harris. John Harris is the president and CEO at Worldwide Partners, one of the world's largest advertising and marketing communications networks, made up of 70 independent agencies in 40 countries, employing four and a half thousand people around the world. Clients include Lufthansa, Microsoft, Pfizer, McDonald's, Amazon, 3M, just go down the list of some of the largest companies in the world. Worldwide partners, agencies manage over $5 billion in worldwide advertising expenditures, and he has held senior roles in TBWA, the Integer Group, Smashburger, Location 3, and Worldwide Partners, as we've said. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. John Harris, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, uh, Nathan. It is a pleasure to be with you today and with your audience. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Let's start with your background in history because you've had a fascinating career. And we're going to talk about all of that from your background and branding to uh, sort of your experience on the agency side, on the client side, growing brands, the agency landscape and, and B2B marketing more broadly. But you started your career in the beer industry. That's a pretty unusual route into the advertising industry. Explain. Yeah, you know, uh, it was uh, certainly not the traditional path into the world of advertising. The summer before my final year at university, I took a job delivering beer for uh, a Miller Brewing Company distributor in Houston, Texas. And uh, the job was what you might imagine. It was hauling kegs of beer into local accounts and uh, cleaning the tap lines and the faucets and uh, taking beer orders and placing marketing materials in the tap uh, in the uh, in the retail environment. And so these were very street level tactics that were at the core of what beer distributors do every day to uh, ensure that their end users could enjoy a proper pint. So I was I was really learning the beer business at the, at the foundational level. 
And perhaps unknowingly at the time, I was learning some very fundamental marketing principles that are as relevant today as, as they were over 30 years ago. I mean, it was all about CX and, and the customer experience, um, not only experience for the bar patrons, but the experience for the bar owners who um, are the B2B customer within the beer industry. You know, they're the gateway to the end users. And, and my job was to add value and utility to that relationship, right? It was, it was good customer service. It was product education. So content, right? And, uh, and product performance that grew their business and, and delivered profit return to their bottom line. And I think that growing the business and delivering profit are, are both, you know, conversations that, that brands are having with their agencies every day. So very, very relevant to what I'm doing now. Really interesting background. So, so let's talk about that a little bit more before we get on to the rest of your career, because it proved to be quite pivotal in the way that your career materialized. So how do you go from driving beer delivery trucks uh, at a distributor for the Miller Brewing Company in 1991 to becoming the divisional director for Wonderman Cato Johnson in 1994? And what did you learn along the way? Yeah, I, you know, after I graduated from the university, the, the distributor offered me a job. Uh, you know, I was driving the keg truck, but they offered me a, a full time, you know, position as their special events coordinator. And, you know, it's really kind of a fancy name for ensuring that the, the 30 foot inflatable beer cans that were served as brand beacons at these music festivals didn't fall down. Right. Um, but uh, but in addition, I, I was managing local events and sponsorships, uh, working on local media plans, uh, doing community outreach and and localization of the national programs for Miller brands. So I was was working with Miller's media and sports marketing agencies as their their local contact. Um, and I did this for a few years and two and a half years. And the account supervisor at Wonderman, who was the the sports marketing AOR for for Miller at the time, the account soup left to, to take on another position. So I received a call uh, from the managing director on the account, and he offered me the job initially as an account supervisor. And I was you know I was flattered. I was excited. I mean, who who wouldn't want to work on sports marketing for a beer company? Sure. And I asked him, you know, why me? And um, because I'd, I'd never interned at a, an, a at an agency, I'd never been an assistant account executive or an account executive. I'd never seen much less even written a brief. Uh, but I'd worked at our agencies with our agencies at a lo- as a local client, but never worked for an agency. And he said to me, he said, John, you know the beer business. You know what works in the local markets, and that's what our clients need us to demonstrate and deliver. I can teach you to write a brief. And so that began my uh, my agency career and started with Wonderman. And um, so that beer knowledge really uh, became a, a core uh, component of, of my path and an advancement. I moved to Dallas. I, I managed the activation of Miller Sports sponsorships with the National Football League and National Basketball Association, PGA. And, and then three years later, I was recruited by a new then independent agency in Denver called the Energy Group, which was launched when Coors Brewing Company outsourced um, their in-house marketing team, which is complete opposite of what we're seeing now, where clients are bringing more uh, in-house. And so I spent um, over 11 years there at Integer running the core shopper marketing business and then the P&G business and and then the agency's e-commerce practice. And along the way, Omnicom had acquired the agencies. But I think that that one of the key learnings for me in that, uh, which I think has helped me throughout my agency career, is just this, this power of expertise, right? I was a beer guy. Um, and then I became an agency beer guy. And then I became an agency retail guy. And then I became an agency commerce guy, right? It's that, that expertise that I honed 
over many years really gave me an advantage. And it's, and it's one that allowed me to climb the ranks many times before I was ready um, because businesses want expertise. They reward expertise and, you know, and, and expertise can command a premium. So, you know, I think a key learning was pick a lane, right? Whether you're an agency or a brand side marketer, expertise can, can create value. So, so fast forward a few years and you become president of TBWA Denver. Uh, you had clients like McDonald's, TD Ameritrade, American Crew and Fresh Gourmet. But within the first few days of the job, your biggest client, McDonald's, said that they wanted to fire the agency. How did you respond? Well, the, I think the first move was I, I went to the pub. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because this was right. I mean, you know, that cures all. Um, so, I, uh, I mean, this was our largest client, right? And um, and uh, it was an unexpected early challenge in this in this new role. Um, but I guess as a as a former account person and and as you know, me being a man, right? I quickly jumped into that natural state of let me solve this problem, mm. right? Because that's what we do as men. We don't always listen. Um, um, like we should. Um, so I think the first step was really trying to compartmentalize what the problem was. Uh, was it our team? Um, was it the work? Was it the outcomes? Was it the relationship? You know, we, we, we'd had to count for well over a decade, maybe even almost two. And I think with any relationship over time, both parties can become too comfortable uh, or even complacent. Um, neither of which are things you can call your client out on. <laughs> so um, we made some personnel changes on the team. Uh, we brought in some outside expertise, um, um, someone who had worked on McDonald's um, specifically. We brought in new creative leadership and you know, challenged the team to, to build upon the knowledge we had, but to really be, reimagine the approach to the business. You know, don't be afraid to push new ideas. Uh, and it worked. You know, the client's business went up, um, uh, agency profitability was up, and then three years later, they fired us. Huh. And, you know, so, you know, the question is why, right? And, and I think that, 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 you know, agencies, we don't get fired because the work isn't good. I mean, there's, you know, you said we could break the profanity barrier, right? There's some shit work that's out there, you know, being done on clients' behalf. But, um, uh, but the relationship is strong. So agencies get fired not necessarily because they're doing bad work. It's because the relationship isn't good. And I think a good relationship really un- allows underperforming agencies to work with their clients to better their performance. But, you know, as we showed, you know, an agency can deliver some great work and still get fired. And so I think the core issue at play was that we didn't have an aligned team, right? We, we brought in some free agents from from outside the, the the agency and we combined them with some of the existing uh agency uh, team members we didn't have the muscle memory of working together we there were different agendas that were at play and and the client could tell and so you know this this mixture of of a lack of alignment on where we were going and how we were going to get there ultimately ultimately led to the loss of the client and, and i think as an organization alignment is is everything so Talk us through that for a moment, just before we move on, because that's that's a really fascinating story. So after you went to the pub and found the answers at the bottom of the pint, you then came back to the team, appraised, look, this is where we are. This is what we need to do. This is how we need to change. What does that first conversation with McDonald's look like? Like, what conversation did you have with them? They were ready to kick you out the door at that point. But somehow you managed to convince them otherwise. Like, how did that conversation go? Yeah, I, I said one, 
give me a chance here because I just had really, this was the first week on the job. <laughs> and I said, you know, give me some time. Let's talk about what the issues are. Uh, and they outlined a, a series of things. And, and I went back to the team and I said, well, here's what the client's saying. What do you think? Uh, and of course, you know, as, as, and normal, they, you know, we would, you know, we found some of us were, you know, were defensive about what the client was saying. Uh, but at the end, you know, we realized that we loved working on the business. Uh, this is one of the, the largest, you know, uh, global marketers in the world. We had been working on it for, for almost two decades and we wanted to win. Right. And so we, so we came together and said, let's assess what the problems are. Where are the gaps? Um, but we all realized, well, not all of us. Um, some of us realized we needed to make some changes on the team. And that was, that was a difficult decision. And um, uh, we're bringing in new people and, 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 and trying to establish um, kind of an aligned set of approaches that we were going to do was, was, was tough. Um, but you know what, I, my job was to push and work our way through it. And so that, you know, then we came back to the client and said, all right, well, listen, we've got new team members. Here's a new approach we'd like for you to consider. Uh, we spent time with the franchisees, uh, which was another learning from my, my very early on days of working at the beer business, because, you know, at the end of the day, what happens in the retail environment is it's the front line. Right. So we can come up with all these great ideas that we think at the corporate level or at the agency level work. But at the end of the day, if the franchisees or if the retail environment, the front line can't execute them or aren't behind them, it's not going to work. Um, so, you know, we met with the McDonald's corporate client. We worked with the franchisees. We laid out the plan and they said, OK, we you know, we can point to some changes that you're making. Let's give it a go. Uh, and so it was it was hard. You know, it was not easy. And, and, and to the team's credit. Um, you know, um, they, they weren't afraid to push, but I think at the end of the day, you know, as with any relationship, a decision had been made. We were able to just hold it together for, for a three-year period. Mm, really fascinating. So you then went client-side to Smashburger. We don't know that much about Smashburger in the, in the UK. It's not a, a well-known brand here, but at the time, I think they had about 50 units, uh, but they were growing really, really quickly. You were responsible for designing the marketing department structure, managing national marketing calendars, uh, managing the fund and department PL, and developing brand messaging and marketing plans to support 100 plus corporate and franchisee owned stores. What did you learn from being client side about the role of agencies and the role that they play in the priorities of the CMO? Sure. So, uh, so Smashburger at the time was about, uh, it was, it was a startup, a fast, casual restaurant chain, uh, we had 50 units and, and quickly accelerated to hundred units during the time I was there. Now I think there are almost 400 locations, probably the closest to you is in Brighton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there were in 10 countries, they're in 10 countries now, but, uh, um, uh, there are six, I believe in the UK. Okay. Um, so it was my first job client side. Uh, and to my point earlier about expertise, I was offered the job, not because I had been a you know, great brand marketer on the client side, but because I had three years expertise and experience working on the largest burger marketer in the world, and that was McDonald's, uh, but that was in an agency. So now I was, I was on the other side of the table, and I learned very quickly that 95% of how clients spend their time has absolutely nothing to do with the agencies, at least at that time. I was working on price elasticity studies. I was working on menu board optimization. I was forecasting the lift of bundled meals and the profit impact of offering a free drink with a burger versus a free side with a burger. And this was complete new territory for me. I, you know, I, I wanted to be 
at the agency's office and, and, and working on the brief. Um, but this was uncomfortable territory. And I think, you know, we always talk about, you know, where learning occurs, right? It's, it really happens in that, that discomfort zone. Um, so being uncomfortable was good, uh, but it brought me back to my initial training in the beer business again, right? And at the end of the day, the CMO's role is all about driving business and not driving campaigns, right? And so that understanding combined with having sat on that side of the table has been extremely valuable to me in building credibility and sustained relationships with clients. But here's a key takeaway for the agencies that are listening. You know, that, that, that 5% of the CMO's time spent with agencies, I believe, is a massive opportunity and, and quite frankly, a mandate uh, for agencies to increase that tenfold. Because the percentage was less a function of the importance of the role of agencies and, and more a function of how they were providing value for me. Right. So, you know, when you I, I wanted to spend more time with the agencies, but but what I was what I was looking for was more business leadership um, and, and less campaign leadership from them. And so I believe that 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 95 percent, 5 percent experience that I had is is not what it should be. I think we have an opportunity to increase it. And like I said, tenfold. But it's upon us as agencies to earn that place back and add more value to increase the time we're spending with the CMOs and, and hopefully CEOs. Really fascinating. So, so just on that, then, how would an agency maybe that wasn't known to you at the time, how would they have provided better strategic leadership? Let's say an agency really wanted to work with you and Smashburger at the time, but you had no idea that they existed. What would they have had to have done? What would they have had to put on your agenda for you to sit up and listen to them and say, oh, this is really interesting. Let me entertain that strategically. Yeah, it's. It, I don't need you to send me a credentials deck, right? Because that's that's what we we tend to do is to talk about ourselves. And so I think that the agencies who are demonstrating their value and their understanding of the client's business first and foremost, those are the ones that would have gotten on my radar screen. The ones that said, I have an opportunity to help you drive um, the your business uh, in increasing your penetration of the burger market in this specific market or with this specific consumer, uh, let us demonstrate to you how that's going to happen. Then I'm going to listen. But send me your agency reel, send me your agency credentials, uh, send me a, 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 a mass email, you're not going to get my attention, right? Mm. The ones that, that listened to me were able to, and one that I actually hired and then ultimately went and worked for, were capable of demonstrating to me the value of ensuring that customers had a clear understanding of where Smashburger could be found because we were a new brand at the time. We only had 50 locations. They were able to demonstrate and understand for me that you have okay brand awareness, but nobody knows where you're located. Let us help you find um, and develop strategies that are gonna help your, your restaurants get found. Uh, and that agency was location three, which is an agency I ultimately ended up in, uh, working for. Mm. So nice segue onto location three. So final question ab about this before we get onto worldwide partners and yeah. sort of B2B marketing and sort of the future, because that's really where, where I want to get to. We don't usually spend so much time on, on the, the guest background, but your yeah. history is really fascinating. So well, it's, it's, it, it's, it's long. I don't know if it's fascinating, but it's long. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. <laughs> Um, so you become chief uh, strategy officer for Location 3 in 2011. They had clients like AT&T, US Airways, Home Depot, and, and UPS, to name a few. You learned about SEO and paid search there. And you say for the first time in your career, you could actually measure ROI. Explain. 
Yeah, you know, I think without a doubt, it was the first time I could isolate the impact of the specific work we were doing on a client's behalf and measure the ROI, and especially on the performance marketing side of the business, right? Because when you're when you're developing advertising campaigns and you're developing in-store shopper marketing work, there's so many other factors that can come into play, right? It's where is your display put in the retail environment? What's the competitive pricing? Um, is uh, the, the competitor spending um, uh, and creating a higher share of voice during that time? But in, in the performance space, you know, yes, we were competing against ad terms, but we had the ability to dictate how much we were going to spend uh, and bid on a specific term. And so we were able to isolate exactly what we were doing and could prove the return on our ad spend to the point where my boss there at the time would always say to a client, if, if we're returning 15 to 1 return on ad spend, right? So for easy math, let's just say $15 in sales for every marketing dollar we're spending in search. Why would you ever cap your marketing spend? I said, that's good. And then I said, that's also an agency person talking who's who's failing to take into consideration that there are some operational costs associated with fulfilling that transaction. Sure. But in but in principle, it's not a bad argument. Um, and and most importantly, we had this ability to to enable the CMOs to demonstrate their value to the CEOs, uh, which then made us an invaluable partner. So I mean, our our KPIs were leads and conversions. That's how we were compensated. That's all we focused on. And we were making the client and the agency money. And so this was you know, a bit of a breakthrough for me at that point in my career to be able to have that level of transparency and visibility and the, the ability to, to move the levers in such a way that we could prove without a doubt this was the return that we delivered um, uh, for our clients. Really fascinating. Let's let's talk a little bit about worldwide partners. So you saw on LinkedIn, fast forward a couple of years, and you saw on LinkedIn that a global advertising network in Denver were looking for an executive director. First of all, I didn't think those sorts of jobs <laughs> actually appeared on LinkedIn. They don't appear on my LinkedIn anyway, so I'm, I'm not being targeted clearly. But tell us a little bit more about the network and what first attracted you to them. Yeah, I, I, I was a bit surprised myself uh, because the words... Global Advertising Network in Denver, Colorado, do not end up in the same <laughs> sentence very often. You know, I mean, it was Omnicom who had, who had acquired an agency that I worked for uh, here, and then Crispin Porter Boguski, uh, and I'd already spent a decade at one of those. So um, I think what was appealing to me was certainly the global nature of the network. You know, I had worked on some cores business in the UK and in Puerto Rico, but um, nothing really at this global level. I was also intrigued that this was a network of independent agencies, and, and it was a model I had very little knowledge of. You know, I um, uh, again, I was time in the holding companies, but here was Worldwide Partners, this global network of independent agencies that was founded in 1938, and it was you know independently owned, operated, and, and independently branded agencies who were actually collaborating effectively on their clients' behalves and been doing so for 80 years. And, and it was based in Denver, so I'd never heard of these guys, and so I said I have to learn more about it. So here we are. Really fascinating. And and so how many agencies are in, in the network? What types of agencies are there? And what problems do you solve for your clients that they can't get anywhere else, either from the networks or the consultancies or any sort of models that are out there? Sure. So so I think the the context around the makeup of our network is, is really, really important. Um, and you asked me earlier about you know, how an agency gets on a client's radar and how they would have convinced me to work with them. I think what's happening in the, in the, the client dynamic is that they're realizing that uh, clients can't keep cost cutting 
other way to meet the numbers and effectively rebuild their their, their companies for a post-pandemic world. They're, they're understanding that they, they need to grow brands again. Um, many of them realize that to do that, they're going to need this kind of a new kind of full service agency solution that's based upon, again, specialized expertise. It's based upon collaboration and, 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 and delivers the scale that they need. So as, as we've seen, many, many clients are bringing services in-house, but they're increasingly complementing their in-house capabilities with these external partnerships. And they're, and they're vetting agencies for expertise first, not simply services first. So the central question these clients are asking themselves are, what expertise do I need to reimagine growth for our brands? And and it's through that lens that they're going to make and defend agency decisions. So clients are looking to handpick expertise by capability, by geography or industry vertical to solve these precise situations. And agencies are looking to complement their specialties and and to scale up. Okay, So, so what we're offering is this combination uh, of, of filling a gap for both clients and agencies, where agencies are needing to scale as independent agencies, both geographically and through capabilities, and clients are looking for expertise. So we now have 70 agencies in 40 countries. And, and, and as you would expect, we have creative agencies, we have media agencies, we have digital agencies, we have production agencies, but we've added um, a depth and a diversification of expertise also by industry verticals. So we have healthcare agencies, we have travel tourism agencies, um, we have B2B agencies, but within B2B, we have agencies who specialize in software brands, industrial B2B, building materials, agricultural marketing, and then of course we have B2C. So we've got experts in retail, CPG, beverages, and gaming. Uh, we've recently added a sound design agency in Tokyo that was founded by Simon Laban of Duran Duran and, um, and a retail design agency in Santiago. And so where the point of this is that we're building this this diverse uh, network of, of, of agencies who want to collaborate uh, together to be able to solve very, very specific needs for how clients are searching for solutions. You know, last year we had a request that came in from the UK for an agency in the US with travel and hospitality experience, a government affairs practice, and an office in Washington, DC. And you know what? I had one. Amazing. And so that that level of precision of how clients are looking to make decisions is what we're delivering. So we're we're creating this synergy of diverse cultures, diverse minds, diverse skill sets, uh, and a global platform that's really engineered to help clients reimagine growth through collaboration. That's what we're offering. That's that's unique. And as you said, which is key, they want to collaborate, which is kind of the criticism that's been leveled against the big holding groups, right, for a long time. Yeah, well, I can, I can, I can bang on the holding companies, you know, all you want, but I, you know, I, I should say that I, I spent, you know, over a decade there, and I, I wouldn't trade the experience for the world. I mean, I, I worked with really passionate, talented people who, who created powerful and effective work for the clients, and we were a great team, and, and, and really all we cared about was winning. But I think for several year now, years now, winning has looked very different in the publicly traded networks. Uh, I think, quite frankly, the when you have this shareholder-centric orientation of the holding companies clashing with the client-centric orientation of the agency, it really has become pretty difficult for, for, for anyone to win. And um, as you said, we have a very different model. I think the, the most fundamental difference is that our network doesn't own the agencies, right? The agencies actually own the network. Hmm. So I don't own it. 
my I, my bosses, I report to a board of directors of 10 agency leaders from around the globe, and we work together to set the vision and the strategy and the goals for the network. So it's a, it's a reverse holding company, you know, where the network takes direction from the agencies versus the network dictating terms to the agencies. And I think that the, the, the kind of, if you look at the origins of the two, you know, Worldwide Partners was, was uh, um, um, founded based on this premise that collaboration drives growth for our clients and our employees and, and our agencies. And, and holding companies were founded on the premise that acquisition drives growth for the shareholders. And um, that's a very, very different model. You know, they, and the holding companies, they can deliver scale and they can deliver a diverse set of skill sets. But diversification alone does not translate to integration that the clients are demanding. It's, it's integration is a, it's, it's an outcome of collaboration, not acquisition. And like I said, we haven't acquired the agencies and said, Hey, everybody partner up, sell yourselves as an integrated solution, generate more revenue from the clients, and then, then increase our share price. And we all win. Um, collaboration happens when, when there's this commitment between parties, that's that's based upon trust and shared values and mutual respect for shared outcomes, but it's, it's really a function of choice. It's, it, it can't be mandated. And in, in our agencies, they're working together because they choose to, not because they have to. And that's, that's why it works. So what does the future of the holding companies look like? Because, I mean, you've already said that they're full of talented people, really smart, capable people, but their business has come under pressure in the, in the last handful of years or so. Uh, you've got consultancies, you've got Google and Facebook that are taking more and more of their revenue. You've got innovative new new players like Worldwide Partners in the mix as well. What does the future of the holding company look like? Well, I think right now what you're seeing is it's all about consolidation, right? I mean, you're seeing this, um, this uh, merger of creative brands and, you know, digital brands or data-driven brands and techno- technology-driven brands. You know, you have, you know, VML and YNR coming together. I'm not going to pick on any one specific holding company, um, but uh, Wonderman and J. Walter Thompson coming together. And so um, I think what has been um, positioned as a client benefit, which is we're going to bring these brands together to make ourselves easier to work with to integrate creative and technology, to break down the silos. But at the end of the day, let's let's call it what it is. This is a consolidation move to deliver efficiencies and return for shareholders, okay? So, you know, it is not easy to deliver the consolidation that they're looking to do and, and create a culture around collaboration when you're bringing two extremely diverse brands together. Um, um, so I think their future right now looks like we're going to get we're going to get smaller. We're going to try to become simpler, and we're going to position this as an added value benefit to our clients. Um, I read last week that the holding companies over the last uh, year have lost uh, ten thousand jobs. Hmm. Right, so part of that consolidation has been elimination of talent. Some of that talent has been very senior level talent because that senior level talent costs more than the junior level talent. But what you're removing is a layer of senior level talent with a business acumen that clients are looking for. And so although we compete against the holding companies, um, I, I, I know that they will eventually figure this out. And in some instances, I, I hope they figure out because there's such a broad representation of our industry overall. Um, and if there's any you know, negative halo effect that comes from some of the activity that's there on the rest of the industry, that's not good for everyone. Um, but but it will be a slow process, and and they will they they may get there, um, but uh, until they can 
create the, the, the culture around collaboration that's based on putting clients before shareholders, it's always going to be a challenge. So if you look at the business in the next three to five years, and it's 10 times bigger than what it is today, what would have had to have happened for that to have occurred? Like, what would that success have been down to? Uh, for worldwide partners, I think um, to grow tenfold it would be the result of our ability to grow our clients' business tenfold, right? I mean, that, that's that's why we're here, right? We are here to grow the clients' business, you know, each and every day. And and it's one of the things that I learned going back to my, my beer roots is that at the end of the day, we're not in the advertising business. We're in the sales business. So our ability to grow as a network, our agency's ability to grow as individual agencies is 100% tied to our ability to grow our clients business so that that's what it would have been a result of Hmm, really interesting so one more question about sort of the landscape because i'm really fascinated about sort of how it's all changing the the competition for the cmo's budget um uh, you know it's not just from the holding groups it's from increasingly from the consultancies accenture bain mckinsey etc it's from you know, Googles and, and Facebooks and, and, and the media owners themselves, um, because obviously they, a lot of them have relationships with the CEOs in the boardroom. I mean, McKinsey are already, Accenture, go down the list, are already in the boardroom with the CEO having these senior level conversations. Who holds the upper hand in this scenario? Like, who are the winners and losers here? Talk a little bit about how you see the landscape evolving over the next few years. I think there's some clear winners and some clear losers, and there are many uh, whose fate is is to be determined. I think currently the winners are the social networks and the software companies. Uh, the social networks are, are providing the, the the audience access, right? And 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 I mean that's where the the, the scale is uh, in reaching, you know, where most of the eyeballs are going. Uh, software companies are providing the tools that. Or allowing clients and agencies both to maximize efficiency and, and the precision of the media buys uh, to deliver the highest degree of, of, of ROI. So, so clients are, are shifting an exponential level of their spend towards these two groups, and they're leaning into this idea of personalized marketing at scale. The losers are the consumers or the end user, if you look at the B2B environment. Mm. <clears throat> uh, are you familiar with the name Vent Surf? No, but I feel as though I should be. <laughs> well, when I tell you who he is, we 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 all should feel feel like we should be. Uh, Vint Cerf was the event, the inventor of the internet. He ah, was yes. the he, he was the co-designer of the the protocols and the architecture uh, of the internet. Vince once said that the internet is only useful if it has content people can apply, if it has the ability to make people's lives easier or even improve the quality of their lives. That's what makes the internet important. And I think Vint would be very disappointed in, in us because marketers and agencies and social networks and consultancies, all of us are abusing the powers of the tools at our disposal to bombard consumers with interruptive messages uh, in the spirit of, of, of efficiencies. Um, but we're doing so, I think, at the expense of efficacy, right? We have these own channels and we can, we can say whatever we want. Um, uh, we can bombard people with as many emails as we want and, 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 and we're abusing that power. And I think it's all been in this, this, this idea of 
of, of personalized marketing at scale, right? We can, we can understand who our customers are. We're gonna, we know what they've purchased. We can give them recommendations for this. But at the end of the day, we have to make a transition from personalized marketing to personal marketing, where empathy and, and value are what we're demonstrating to our customers. We launched a report uh, a year ago uh, on mandating this transition from CX, from customer experience to HX, which was human experience. And, and human experience is what people crave and brands are increasingly missing. Um, you know, we've, we have to make this shift of, of, of understanding that all the brand's features and benefits uh, combined um, are not enough. It's a brand's HX that's gonna, gonna um, decrease the, their ultimate value. And so, you know, we are abusing this these tools that we have and not realizing that we have an opportunity to not just identify who customers are, which is the customer experience mindset, but understand who customers are. And that's the HX human experience mindset. So talking about HX and personalized marketing at scale, what does that look like for B2B marketing? I mean, you've, you've got a number of capable B2B agencies within, within the network. What does the future of B2B marketing look like, considering that we have all of this amazing sort of software and data to personalize communications at scale? Yeah, well, you know, I think the promise of, of CRM, of account-based marketing, is this proposition of creating a more satisfying transaction for the customer. We're going to manage the customer journey along the way, and we're going to provide she or he all this valuable content that's going to make uh, move them through the funnel to ultimately create a more satisfying transaction. And when we're making decisions, we're thinking about where he shares and what she might be thinking and, and how we can make that transaction more fulfilling. I think we need to shift the emphasis from a, a, a more satisfying transaction to a more fulfilling life. And that sounds a little aspirational, if you will, for even a B2B brand to deliver. Sure. But at the end of the day, B2B decision makers, they're people, right? They're, they're, they're people too. And, and, and our job is to help not just make them look good for, for their, 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 their bosses, but to help provide fulfillment along the way um, that's going to truly add value to their role and to their life. And so we've gotten caught up in, in, in the tech, right? Um, and, and the predictability of the tech, but we, we're underestimating the power of understanding um, why consumers are making the decisions or not making the decisions they, that they do, and the importance of messaging along the way. Uh, and 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 we're getting caught up in the power of automation and losing the human element of it. So I think that the, the change that needs to happen is realizing, if we talk specifically in the B two B marketing spaces, these are people too. Right. There's there. We, we, we've talked about these differences between marketing a beer brand versus marketing a software company. I think there are much more similarities than, 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 than we think. Really interesting. So you talk about um, that there are more similarities between the beer brands and software companies, which I think is absolutely fascinating and that we need to market more to the human being, the human experience. So I'm going to put this to you. The data scientist matters more than the big creative idea. Discuss. Bollocks. <laughs> well said. Listen, you know, I mean, it's, um, I don't believe it's an either or proposition. I think this marriage of, of art and science, heart and mind, whatever you want to call it, is, is where the magic lies. I believe that we have become servants to the data. 
Okay. And, and, and it's easy to understand why that that's the case, right? I talked earlier about the predictability and, and demonstrating, you know, ROI and the media that you're spending, but, you know, especially given the, the average tenure of the CMO, um, one of the recruiting firms here in the U S said that it's 41 months, right? That's the average tenure of a CMO 41 months. So if I've got 41 months on this job, I want to leverage the power of data um, to 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 give me a higher degree of predictability, to give me assurances, um, to to give me the proof that I need to guide my decisions, right? And the agencies are leaning in on that data to sell their strategies and to demonstrate their value. But we're but we're looking to data to solve the problem at the expense of creating a differentiated brand idea that adds value to the customers' lives. Um, and I, I believe that this has led to a short-termism um, where we are in this constant mode of Let's optimize the campaign. Let's deliver the numbers today. I'm only going to be here for 41 months. I've got to deliver. I have to deliver because I want to be on the higher side of that average tenure. Um, and so it's 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 put blinders on um, to 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 the long term proposition of building brands. If we needed any more validation of the power of creativity, we we saw it almost two years ago now when Accenture spent $450 million to buy Droga5, hmm. right? A consultancy buying one of the most renowned creative agencies in the world. I believe that creativity is the single greatest differentiator in, in any business, right? Not just the marketing business, in any business. Right? Creative people deliver ideas, ideas create value. And it's time that we, that we bring that, that level of creativity back to the table. And, and the narrative's changing. Right. It's 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 been around data and technology enabling creativity. And I believe it's now around creativity unleashing the potential of data and technology, because here's here's the challenge with the data scientists. Right. And to really kind of answer your your core question. There was a saying that I, that I heard once. The numbers don't lie, but they don't always tell the truth. <laughs> OK, so a data scientist can tell me what's happening. Right. We got a dashboard and it's raining outside. We're getting weather reports, but that's just what's happening. We have to understand why, sure. right? Why is it raining? Um, we also have to go to the human element, understand what it feels like to be standing in the rain. Hmm. Okay. And so where, where the data scientists can give us the weather report, uh, the strategists and, 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 and the creative teams have the ability to, to dig deeper and to understand why this is happening, why it matters, and what I should go and do about it. All right. So we have to move from just this big data. We have more data than we know what to do with. Mm. Uh, but we have to make a transition to thick data. Right. And thick data is this this context, this contextual understanding of why and why it matters. And, and so what? Right. I, I hated when the agency brought to me. Here's your return on ad spend. I'm like, well, is that good? Is that bad? Do I care? Sure. So, so I I don't believe that the data scientist matters more than than the big creative creative idea. I think we have to come together, um, um, and and not let the data paralyze us to a point where we're inhibiting inhibiting uh, great creative thinking. Well said. Okay, final question before we get into our favorite questions at the end of the interview that we ask all of our guests. Um, so you talk about creative people earlier. And, you know, even though we've seen huge progress in recent years with representation of women and minorities at the highest levels of leadership, it's still sadly lacking in our industry. Media and advertising is, is not very 
diverse. And I think 2020 and 2021 shone a huge spotlight on that. Um, talk about what the problems are in getting greater diversity in, in our industry and what more can be done. Yeah, I think if you let's look at the data, right? I, I think um, we're not doing enough as an industry, and the data speaks for itself. Um, after the the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, and the mobilization of the Black Lives Movement, um, I picked up the phone and called a gentleman by the name of Shelley Stewart. Uh, Shelley's a black man. He's the founder of, of O2 Ideas, which is a 54 year old agency in Birmingham, Alabama. And they've been part of our network for 35 years. Um, when Shelley started the, the agency, <clears throat> uh, he started with a white Jewish radio salesman named Cy Steiner. And, and Shelley had to keep his involvement hidden from the agency for 25 years. Um, the shop was originally called Steiner Advertising, and Shelley couldn't put his name on the door. And it's only when Cy passed away um, in the early 90s. Uh, did Shelley come out from behind the curtain and the agency became one of the most successful indies in the South. And prior to launching the agency, Shelley was a DJ um, um, as, and as a teen in the 1950s. He, he had this 10 minutes unpaid weedy, uh, weekly radio broadcast and, and he turned it into a career and he actually bought a, a radio station. Um, and his broadcast appealed to both black and white listeners. And at that time, that was that was pretty unique. Mm. Um, but he played a central role in the protests that that made Birmingham a focus of the civil rights movement in 1963. So he was a great place for me to to start and say, Shelley, what should we do as an industry? What should we do as a network? What can I do? What should I do as 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 the, the CEO of this network? And you know, he said, John, you need to be doing exactly what you and I are doing right now. He said, it's about conversations. It's not about committees. He said, we need to go straight to the end goal, which is about being together. Bring people together to understand and to work with each other across the divides and create ongoing discussions right throughout the organization where everyone's working day to day on what's missing and, and what's worth changing. And so, you know, I was, and I think many of our immediate kind of response was, Let's go launch an initiative here, and let's sure. hire you know a, a chief diversity officer. And and Shelley wasn't saying those are the wrong things to do. He says, but focus on the end goal and and prioritize the conversation. And he said, John, the fact that you just picked up the phone and called me mm-hmm. signals to me that that this is different than when I marched with 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 Dr. King, right? And and Shelley's seen this year over year, and he says, but the fact that you called me. That's why this feels different to me. And so I think we have a long way to go. And, and, and Nathan, I would, I would be you know, misrepresenting the truth if I said I have all the answers. But, but that takeaway of just talking and having conversations is a really, really important piece to me. And, and I'm a white male. And, and so I have found myself having more conversations. I have been encouraging our agencies to have the conversations and, and not make this just about an initiative, but make it a, uh, an ultimately a commitment. And I think if we can do that, um, hopefully we will we will make the strides that are long overdue within our industry. Well said. Thank you very much for sharing that. Let's get into everyone's favorite questions now. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests, so I'm really excited to ask you some of them as well. We're probably going to have to hang on for another 10 minutes. Are you okay for time? Yeah, sure. Okay, first question. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. 
Um, you said we only have 10 minutes left. Um, <laughs> no, take as long um, as you need. Take as long as I need. I, you know, I, I think you know, learning comes from failure. And and um, I think that, that rather than point to a, a specific one, um, I'll, I'll talk about a series of them, which really makes me sound like I don't know what I'm doing. But <laughs> I, 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 I think that, that um, where, where, where I have made a mistake uh, on a few occasions is avoiding making the hard decisions sooner rather than later, right? We've all found ourselves in situations where you've had to make a difficult decision, whether it's around um, people uh, and a team member, uh, whether it's about, are we going to invest in this area of the business? Are we going to go and pitch this client? Are we going to fire this client? Right. These are these are difficult, difficult decisions. And and I think the biggest learning I've had is don't put them off. Right. We talked about data earlier, but your gut many times knows the decision that needs to be made. But we're fearful. Right. Because there are people implications to that. There are business implications. But um, um, I would say that 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 my failure to make some decisions um, in several situations um, hurt. And, and I learned and I've gotten more effective at saying, listen, this is going to be a hard conversation, but let's have it now. Um, and let's, let's help the organization and the individuals, if it's a people situation, move forward. So um, um, don't put off the hard decisions, right? That would be what the key learning I've had. That's, that's a good one. Okay. I'm going to enjoy these questions now. Uh, question two, tell us about some of your favorite books, uh, personal development, professional development, media, advertising related, whatever. You know, I, um, um, I've, I've, I'm a big reader of biographies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, and, and as well as, you know, the occasional business book. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've just finished Lenny Kravitz's Let Love Rule. Okay. Uh, the, the takeaway is in the title, right? Not surprisingly. <laughs> um, um, I've got Don't have Arnold to read Palmer. the book. Don't have to read the book. Just listen to the song. Uh, right. but it was, it was, it was, some, it was some good learnings. I think very relevant story given, given some of the dynamics in the world today. Mm. Um, uh, I think one book that I've gone back to several occasions as a business book is the first 90 days, uh, by Michael Watkins. Um, right. and I think when I found myself going into situations, whether it was taking on the leadership role on a new account, uh, or a new agency, uh, or even when I joined worldwide partners, it's, it's a really, um, timeless, a framework for how you need to evaluate what you do on the first 90 days of the job. Um, another business book that I read, gosh, 15 years ago, uh, was Disruption uh, by Jean-Marie Drew, who's the chairman of TWA. Um, uh, it was, uh, disruption such an overused term now, but uh, the book was a, was a breakthrough for me and, and really kind of the foundational philosophy around the agency at the time. And it, it's a really simple proposition when you break it down. It's about looking at the conventions within the category, um, how people are positioning themselves, um, how people are, are what channels um, brands are focusing on, what audiences people are focusing on. It's really eye-opening when you, when you look at the entire category within your competing, the complete lack of differentiation that everybody's doing. Uh, and, 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 and how everyone's using the exact same playbook. So the, the proposition is look at the conventions within category, identify the open space, and that's where the disruption is. Um, so from those two business books are ones that I've, I've, I've pulled off the shelf um, on a regular basis. 
Mm. Um, I was given, and I brought it here because I wanted to remember it. I was re- recently heard about a book that I haven't gotten into yet um, called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Uh, One of my absolute favorite books of all time. So I have yet to to read this, but I'm, it's sitting here in front of me now. And there was another book that was just recently recommended to me called The Future is Faster Than You Think uh, okay. by Peter Diamandis and Diamandis. Steve Collins. Yeah. So mm. um, I haven't gotten to those two as of yet. Uh, and the last one I will tell you about is one called Never Split the Difference. Right. Uh, it was written by an, by an FBI uh, negotiator. And despite it suggesting that you don't find compromise, um, there's a great, my early takeaways, I'm halfway through the book is around understanding people um, uh, and, and, and being able to label the emotions that people have and how that can serve you and, in, 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 you know, in working through any aspect of a relationship of life. So there's some, some book tips and some books that I've enjoyed. Some fantastic books there. Give us one more biography. What other biography do you like? Oof, um, <laughs> I have found myself reading, for whatever reason, rock star biographies, and and some of them didn't end very very well. Right. Um, so um, I read the Scott Whalen's um, biography, Bob Marley. Yeah. Um, those were two that I that I enjoyed. Bob Marley was a a massive uh, a massive read and and a full commitment, but it was. It was a very spiritually moving book on a, on a number of levels. Um, so, but I, I found, and there's nothing against business books because I have them, but I, I found for me personally, learning about people and how they've lived their lives um, has been um, a guiding kind of principle for me because in the end of the day, this is, this is business, but it is personal, right? Mm-hmm. And so learning from other people's you know, victories. Oh, and last piece, Matthew McConaughey's um, um, Green Lights. Just finished that one. Wow. It's vintage. It's vintage McConaughey. If you, I mean, he could be a. He's a polarizing <laughs> yeah. guy. You either love him or you hate him. But, but right. uh, that's a good read. That's a that's a real good read. So okay, some good ones there to add on my reading yeah. list. Okay, thank you. What's the most interesting thing that people don't know about John Harris? Mm, I don't know if it's interesting, but it may be something that that uh, people don't know. I played football, U.S. soccer, football. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the UK. Okay. Right. Um, for, for, for many, I played goalie. Okay. Uh, because I was able to tell people what to do. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, I played uh, division one, um, in university and, and played for a club team and traveled and played in about 13 different countries, wow. um, in my, uh, during, uh, my university times and, uh, oh, wow. got to see the world and, uh, it's the world's, it's the world sport. Right. And, um, so you're uh, right. It is the world they, sport. Now, I now I don't know about it, the Super Bowl stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> enough about the Super Bowl, but you know, right. but over the years, American. I, mean, I played a year of semi-pro in the U.S., but American goalkeepers did very, very well internationally uh, because we were raised, you know, with eye eye hand sports, right? Football oh, and right. baseball sure. and basketball. Sure. So, yeah. Um, uh, now, I wasn't necessarily one of those goalies who had some great successful international career. Uh, but I did get to play in about 13 different countries in my early 20s, and it was fun. Really interesting. Final question on that. Do you support a football team now? And who is it? Oh, wow. Uh, see, that's that's a tough conversation. I, you know who I've been, you know who I like? The, 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 the U.S. women's national team, um, I'm a fan of. And I'm going to tell you why I'm a fan. But you know what? They, the, the level of precision 
I mean, the, the, they understand the game at a level that I've never seen from the U.S. men. I'll be honest with you. Really? It is done with a level of teamwork and a level of precision and skill that it's about the game and not about the individuals because that mm. team has consistently brought new people in uh, and has consistently been, you know, at the top of the world. So uh, rather than a local club, because I'm not going to get into conversation around <laughs> Man U versus Liverpool right. or any of that okay. with uh, someone in the UK, but well um, swerved, uh, well swerved, well swerved. Yes. <laughs> Amazon prime or Netflix. What are you watching or streaming? That's good. Uh, I finished Netflix six months ago. Uh, no, that's, that was my <laughs> you attempt finished at it. Yeah, I finished Netflix. Um, you know, I um, uh, the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Um, uh, I'm a big Ozark fan. Um, mm. I got sucked into the Queen and the Crown, excuse me, um, which Brilliant is just show. you know, oh, it's it it is. And and then all of a sudden, you know, after you know Netflix delivering a personalized experience for me, starts serving up all these British dramas to me and so i was recently watching uh dr foster okay uh bbc publication yeah that's really good and, yeah and um uh and then on on amazon a big fan of yellowstone uh which has been fabulous and then i've got a, a yellowstone kevin costner it's um it's ozarks if you know the story around ozarks on netflix yeah. this is uh, a very similar family and crazy things going on in 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 montana okay Okay. so highly recommend yellowstone if you haven't watched i think there are four seasons at least three and then um a big fan of your honor on showtime uh been a big big showtime uh, fan for many years but your honor just came out and highly would recommend that yeah brian cranston um, um um from breaking bad days your honor okay added to my list thank you very much for them yeah, last couple sure. of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go um when i'm going through tough patches i remind myself of inspirational quotes from people that i admire to get me through like victor frankl's behind stimulus and response there's choice from the magic of big thinking how big we think determines the size of our accomplishment or action cures fear do you have any of those things that you fall back on in tough times yeah. I, and, you know, to my point earlier around kind of biographies and, and taking counsel from people, um, my father uh, passed along two, two pieces, several pieces of advice, but two I find myself playing back now as a father. I think the first is there are only two things in life that you can control, and that's your attitude and your effort. Mm. Right. So you, you, you can't control uh, how someone is going to respond in a business situation. You certainly can't control a global pandemic. Uh, but how you respond with your mindset, your attitude and your actions, your behavior are the two things that you can control. And so I found myself reminding myself and my children uh, about that um, uh, quite often, um, especially, you know, maybe more often than I would hope to, hope to given some of the, the circumstances of today. But um, and then the second thing he told me was you are judged by the company you keep. And um, I think as um, a network of independent agencies, uh, that's been a, a really important piece of, of, of building out the network for me because someone's always asked, how big do you want the network to be? And I was like, it's, it's really not about size. It's about the people and about the diversification of, 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 of cultures and ideas and mindsets and capabilities. Because I think when you're able to bring the right people together, um, that clients are going to see that other agencies are going to be a part of it. So I think surround yourself 
with with great people because you know rightly or wrongly you know you may be judged by that but most importantly surrounding your, yourself with great people is going to elevate um, who you are as as an individual mm. two pieces of advice from my dad love that the first one about controlling the th- focusing on the things that you can control you're going to love the obstacle is the way by Ryan Holiday because that's what it's about it's it's stoic philosophy it's you know what are the things that are in your control yep. focus on them and forget about everything else so yeah, if you haven't got around to the book yet, you're going to absolutely love no, it. No, it's right here and I'm going to get there. It. Brilliant. Um, what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who wants to start their career in the agency world? Find your equivalent of delivering a keg truck, right? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean it because I, I said this at one point in our conversation here yeah. um, that, that, that advertising, you know, we're not in the advertising business, we're in the sales business. Right. And I think if you have the ability to put yourself in an environment where you can first and foremost learn what the end goal is, right, which is to drive sales, um, I think you're going to benefit from it because you're going to evolve into a world that's really focused on on business and not just a brief. Right. So I think that would be one piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say, um, um, <laughs> unfortunately, our industry doesn't pay well. Mm-hmm. Right. So 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 especially at entry level. So go into this with the, the knowledge or the idea of I'm going to learn as much as I possibly can, right? I may, and, and perhaps, you know, unless you're a graphic designer or unless you're a developer that has a really poor skill set, um, go in and try to learn about every aspect of the business that you can. I'm, a, I'm an ex-account guy. I think account, the account role is, is the, with no disrespect to the creatives it's the it can be the should be one of the most important roles in 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 the agency business because our job is to lead the client it's not to manage projects right it's about to bring business leadership from the agency to our client so i think as, a, as an account person you have the opportunity to go and and learn everything you can about paid search about about um, development about the creative process but 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 go and learn as much as you can and then determine you know where what path that you want to you want to go um, but, but if you're going into it for making a lot of money, that's probably not the career that you're going <laughs> to, you're going to do it in at least, at least right out of university. Financial services, banking. Yeah. Just yeah. Banking, <laughs> Facebook, Tech, Google, right? right? You know, right? They're, exactly. they're, 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 they're paying more, but listen, I, I, I will say this. Yeah. I mean, that's great. Let's go work at Facebook. Let's go work at, at Google. Let's go work at Instagram. Let's go work at TikTok. Right. It's, it sounds really cool, but I think. In the agency environment, you have the opportunity, especially in independent agencies, to fuel an entrepreneurial spirit, right? And if you want to go and really be able to make an impact, um, I think within the independent agency space, you really have that opportunity to do so. Mm, absolutely. Great answer. Thank you for that. Fav- favorite beer, by the way. I can't end the interview without asking your favorite beer. I'm trying to, I have to be careful because we service several, several beer clients, right? I mean, it's just me and you know, it's, 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 it's just us, right? Um, I listen is, is obvious and perhaps as boring as it may sound. Um, I like a good, a good, a good Guinness every once in a while and a Heineken. Um, I was, you know, but when it's, it's hot and it's in Houston, Texas, I'm drinking Miller Lite. Great answers. All of them. Uh, uh, They're honest. (laughs) My final, well, the answers are the answers, I guess. Yeah. My final question, what is it you know about the world of media, advertising, and B2B today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Uh, it's, uh, it's a theme I've, I've hit on several times. I think, you know, at the end of the day, this, this is a people business. And, and people say it's, you know, it's business, it's not personal. 
the hell it is. I mean, it isn't. I mean, it's personal, right? And I think that if we as marketers understand that at the end of the day, our job is to provide some value to a customer, right? Whether that's a bar that I'm delivering beer to or the CTO at a major software company, that this is a people business and 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 embracing that human element and everything that you do, um, uh, I think will you'll be successful. I I I'm I'm proud of the fact that the relationships that I've established with my clients and with team um, workers and former bosses, um, I still have many of them today, and and I think that's because you know I learned over time the power of relationships and the power of people um, as and translates to success not just in our business but but in many business. John, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. I, listen, I appreciate just being invited to the dance here. So uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a first time caller, but long time listener. So thank you. Thank you for including me in the process. Yeah. Love it. We have been speaking with John Harris. He is currently the president and CEO at Worldwide Partners. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear any more, head over to Apple Podcasts and you can listen to over 100 episodes that we've done so far. Sign up to our weekly newsletter and you'll be notified of more great guests. You'll get a summary of the best bits from each episode along with a monthly roundup. So please head up to iTunes and give us a five-star review. We would be unable to do this show without our very own deal masters. Christoph Blaschek is our editor. Tyler Baller is our booker slash project manager. Anita Beckoldi is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Deal Masters. This episode was brought to you by Account Insight, the B2B programmatic advertising platform for B2B agencies. In this four-part series, I sat down with co-founder and chief product officer, Tony Chamilias, to discuss the business, the history, and how Account Insight helps B2B agencies deliver targeted, tailored ads to high-value companies. In this week's episode, Tony and I discuss our interview that we've just listened to with John Harris, where he talked about the role of advertising in B2B and where he sees B2B marketing going. Welcome, Tony. Hi, Nathan. So that interview with John, really fascinating conversation um, and great insights from him. He says that we need to make this transition from personalized marketing to personal marketing, where empathy and value is what's being demonstrated to customers. So how does B2B marketing go from CX, in his opinion, customer experience, to HX, human experience? Thanks for the question. I think that's something we, we've seen is really relevant in the context of account advertising as well. And I'd like to take empathy and value as the cornerstone of what we're building here. At, at the end of the day, brand is all about empathy and value. It's all about the set of values, principles, how you build trust. And that's an area where we've seen account advertising succeeding very well over the last year. Let's, let me give you a good example from what we've seen in recent months through the COVID communication and the, and, and the power of handling emotions through account-based advertising. We, we've been running a campaign for, for a while and, and COVID hits hard. Our customer uh, changed communication halfway through. It was not anymore about what the brand is about. It was all about what can we do for you? How can we help you 
in the current situation. The communication changed. It was all about empathy. It was all about, we know you're working from home. We know it's hard time. And we've got a solution for you. We can help you with our products. But it was fundamental in the communication during this campaign to show that we would care for our customers. And, and that resulted in much higher uh, CTR, much higher engagement, and eventually much higher traction from uh, our customer. So, so it's coming back to how, how can you build empathy and value? And it is, at the end, about making sure that you build the right brand for your customers, that you are able to share your values, your, your principles. And you can do that uh, with, with precise communication. I mean, as a, we always we always say, yeah. We we always say, well, as a as a rule of thumb, and given a choice between several options, people tend to prefer the brand that comes to mind most easily. And why is that? Is is because there, you've been able to to build a bond, uh, an emotional bond with your customers. And and we see that reflected at the moment with the with the value that we're seeing of um, Tesla. Um, you know their market cap is probably more valuable than all the auto companies combined, and and that's probably because of the amazing brand and story that has come out of Tesla in recent years. You know everyone's got a story that they can tell about Tesla. But the challenge in B two B is that how do we do that at scale? You know we've got so many different decision makers uh, across across the world in different functional departments. How does B2B personalize those communications and that empathy at scale? Well, I, I think that's really one of the key challenges for B2B organizations in general is, yes, how, how can you make people think of a brand and feel positively about the brand at scale? Um, We've seen that most of the communication is digital nowadays. There's an abundance of content, but the challenge for brands is how can you reach enough people in the companies you want to target? And how can you convey your message and influence not just the people you know, the people who talk to you or who talk to the sales teams, the ones that you have in your marketing automation, but it's also... How can you reach the decision makers you don't even know uh, are, be, are, are sitting out there? And, and that's where uh, account-based advertising is, is able to bridge the gap between the, the, the challenge of communication and the need to be precise on that communication. And we can do that by making sure we only display your uh, content to the right companies, and that we do that in the right context. We do that when people are consuming the right pieces of information. So if you build a, a piece of communication where the targeting is right and the content is right, you are creating relevance. And being relevant is really paramount to succeed today for B2B. Is how, how do we fit? How, how can we be the right answer? It's, it's all about 
being precise in the targeting is about being relevant. And the more you can stress empathy and value in the communication, the less empty uh, talks you'll have. And, and the more you can build a positive feeling towards your brand, and therefore you can accelerate the effectiveness of other channels.